Do you guys know the average salary for a motivational speaker in our country is $107,000? $107,000, that's the average. So yeah, that means there's some that are under that, that maybe are less motivating uh, than others. But then again, there's also others that are making more than $107,000 a year as a motivational speaker. And then beyond just the, the field of motivational speaking, just the whole realm of self-help in the, the United States of America, the, the, the whole industry of self-help is valued currently at $9.9 billion. $9.9 billion in the self-help industry. So those you know, books and the life coaches and the, the motivational speakers and all those things. We as a, a country, as of 2016, spent $9.9 billion on that. It's estimated that that's gonna climb by the year 2020 to be $13 billion. It's a ton of money. It's a ton of money that we spend looking for the answers to some of life's biggest questions that really everybody has. Like, what's my purpose? Why am I here? How do I cope with grief? How do I cope with sorrow? How do I stay motivated? How do I be successful? How do I make my life count when all is said and done? I mean, these are all things that the, the world is, is looking to gurus uh, to give the answers. And they're paying a lot of money for that. Well, in James chapter four, James gives us the answer to that question. And if you have a Bible in your hands, on your phone, in your possession, or if you pick one up from one of the back tables that we have in the room here, you have in your hands the answer to those questions for free. See, James last week identified and we looked at the problem of worldliness. And James said, look, the, the reason that worldliness is such a major problem is that to be a friend with the world is to be an enemy of God. To flirt with the world is to be unfaithful to God. In fact, James uses that strong language when he indicts the, the readers that he's writing to. He says, you're adulterers because of your friendship with the world. And so James is writing to correct that now. And he's saying, look, the answer to that is what he's about to say. But it's more than just the answer to worldliness. It's the answer for us from this time forward. It's the answer for you if you, this is your first day as a believer in Jesus Christ or if this is your millionth day as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's, it's the same call on both of you. And it's where James goes next in James chapter four. James chapter four, verse seven. James says this, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's stop right there. I told you James gives you the answer that this $9.9 billion, billion worth of, of, of people are, are trying to, to provide for the world and, and really they can't provide it. And that answer that James gives you is right there at the beginning of verse seven. Therefore, he says, submit yourselves to God. Right there. Let's boil it down even simpler. Three words, submit to God. That's the answer. That's the key. That's how this life matters. That's what to do in the face of adversity. That's what to do in the face of suffering. That's what to do when life is going well. That's what to do when you're on the mountaintop. And that's what to do when you're in the ICU is to submit to God. See, every single problem in the course of human history 
is traceable back to a refusal to submit to God. You take sin, and we trace sin back to the original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter three. The serpent comes along, and, and that sin is, is traceable back to the fundamental problem of a refusal to submit to God. And so as we're looking at that, and we're saying, look, if we can trace the, the problems of the world at large back to these, the, a, a failure to do this one thing, to submit to God, if, if then we're looking at the problems of the world that we live in, and we're saying, well, how can we see correcting to these problems? How can we see a correction? How can we, we make our lives better? Then the answer is, undo what's been broken. Begin by submitting to God. But what does that look like? Again, James addresses this. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, verse 7. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, the rest of our text tonight explains what does it look like? How do I submit to God? And he begins by holding up the rivalry, right? The rivalry of God and the devil. And we know what rivalries are. There's been some famous rivalries in this world, haven't there? Like brown rice versus white rice. You go to Chipotle and they ask you that question. You know, you've got your answer down, right? You know what the right answer is on that. It's white rice. You get white rice in your, your burrito bowl. You do not get brown rice. I don't care if you're telling me brown rice is healthy. White rice is the way to go. Uh, another uh, rivalry, right? Mountains versus beach. I'm more of a mountain person versus I'm more of a beach person. And that's why you live in Southern California, because you can drive to both in the same day. You can ski and surf on the same day in Southern California, right? You can have the best of both worlds. But typically, you have a, a, a polarization there. I'm a mountain person, no, I'm a beach person. And then there's the, the rivalry of, of East versus West. And, and we talk about East Coast versus West Coast. Who's got the better beaches? Who's got the better music, if we're going to go back to the 80s? Who's got the better politics? Neither of them do, right? And, and so there's a, a split there. What's better, East Coast, West Coast? And then there's the, the spicy, sweet division, right? Do you rather, do you like your food to be more spicy or more sweet? What do you prefer more? That's a, a rivalry, people and relationships over that. And then they're about to escalate as we progress here. They're going up in their intensity. This next one is a, a pretty big one. Microsoft versus Apple. Microsoft versus Apple. And I'm seeing even a, a physical response when I say that. If you're a Microsoft person, you're like, dude, Apple, get that out of my face. And if you're an Apple person, you just don't care about Microsoft, right? It's like, whatever. They're just trying, they're the, the, the redheaded stepchild that's trying to catch up, right? And they're just not going to get there. Apple versus Microsoft. DC versus Marvel. I'm not a comic book guy, but I know enough that, like, dude, if, if I make a mistake and I say that, like, Spider-Man is part of the Marvel universe, that I'm going to just get barraged with people that are going to be like, you're an idiot and you don't know what you're talking about. DC versus Marvel. Is he part of the Marvel universe? See, I have no idea. You guys are like, you are an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Marvel and DC, right? Okay, how about this one? Cats versus dogs, right? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the answer is dogs. It's just how it goes, all right? The, Satan was going to embody a, a cat instead of a snake in the Garden of Eden, and he was like, no, I'm not even going to stoop that low, and he took the snake instead. So that's, that's the way it is. Cats and dogs, right? Uh, how about Christmas music before Thanksgiving versus you're just a Scrooge and you hate Jesus? Because um, those are the categories that exist there, right? It's, it's got to be right after Halloween and not after Thanksgiving because that's not enough time. So rivalries, you get the point. James talks about a rivalry because the thing is, is rivalries polarize people. They put people on opposite sides of the spectrum. 
and you're willing to go toe to toe and you're willing to, to do battle over this and you're not gonna cross enemy lines and go to be on the other person's side no matter how passionate they are about their argument. Well, James says here we have an idea of what we need to do here if, if we wanna submit to God. It begins by making sure that we are on the right side of that rivalry. In James chapter seven, and, or chapter four, verse seven and verse eight, there's the two sides. Resist the who? Resist the devil, and the opposite is draw near to God. See, as believers, not to boil it down and make it overly simple, but it really it is overly simple in, in this way. There, there's really two teams that you can be on in this life. You can be on God's team, or you can be on the devil's team. And think about it. If, if we're so loyal to something as, as ridiculous as computers, which are designed to eventually stop working so that we'll spend more money on them, but we're so loyal that if, if you're a Microsoft person and I'm a Mac person and I try to convince you to become a Mac person, you're gonna like hiss at me, right? You just don't want anything to do with a Macintosh. Guys, if, if we're that passionate about something so ridiculous as a computer, how much more passionate should we be about our allegiance to God's team? That's point number one tonight. If you wanna submit to God, number one, choose God's team. Choose God's team. Daily, choose God's team. It's a, a, a battle that's gonna face you every single day until you go to, to, to heaven to be with him. It's gonna waking up, making sure that you're putting on God's jersey and not the jersey of the devil. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's an amazing promise. To resist means to oppose or to stand against. You think about Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, when Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all too once walked and were by nature children of wrath, right? That's who we used to be and so that's what we wanna resist and that lifestyle is what we wanna resist because now, Ephesians 2, 4, but God has made you alive together with Christ Jesus and has seated you in the heavenly places, right? So now that we're on God's team, we need to resist the life that we once lived. We need to resist the devil and we need to resist his wiles. And the promise there is he will flee from you. Y'all, here's the, the amazing reality is you can overcome Satan and his demons. You can overcome the world's system. No, not in your own strength, but because you have the Holy Spirit living within you, if you will resist the devil the way that Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness during his temptation, God's promise is real and true and right and can be held and banked on here that he will flee from you. He will run from you. What does this look like? First, it looks like in actually engaging in the battle and the fight against your sin. Not being comfortable with sin in your life. Not thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I've got sin in my life, but so does everybody else, and I, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, so it's no big deal because I'm, I'm gonna be forgiven, right? Maybe you wouldn't be so bold as to say that, but you live that way because you've got unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented of sin that's in your life that you're just okay with. And so to resist the devil means to battle your sin, to fight your sin. Second, it, it involves discipline. To resist the devil is going to involve disciplining yourself. Not to give in to the temptation. Not to put yourself in the way of sin. Not to continue to fall prey to the same patterns of disobedience, the same patterns of sinfulness that you find yourself uh, falling to over and over and over again. Having the discipline to say something's gotta change and I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I'm gonna cut off my hand and throw it from me to, to make sure that this stops. 
Third, it involves counting the cost of your compromise. To resist the devil means to think about the end of, of sin. We've looked at it already in James, right? James says that, that temptation, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, yields what? Death. So when you think about the temptations that you battle that look so good on the surface, if you will go to the end of that temptation through the sin, and, and if, if in the mind you'll go, okay, what's gonna happen if I give in to this? It will lead you to despair and death and, and a hindered relationship with the Lord, a hindered relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. It will leave you wanting more, unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And so consider the cost of your compromise. And then finally, to resist the devil, be proactive in finding the way of escape. Do you guys know that God promises that with every temptation? Do you know that? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, the sins that you struggle with, other people struggle with them. And Paul's saying, you know what? And, and God is not gonna tempt you beyond what you're able to Endure, but with every temptation, he says, he's gonna provide you a way of escape. And so your job, as you're resisting the devil on a daily basis, because you wanna choose God's team, because you wanna submit to God, your job is to say, where's the escape? How can I actively, proactively, before you're even encountering that temptation, you know when those temptations come up, be proactive about thinking about, where's my escape? And how am I gonna take advantage of that? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He cannot stand up against God, and you have God through the Holy Spirit living within you. The flip side of that, though, is draw near to God. You want to choose God's team? Draw near to God, and he will, in return, again, a promise, draw near to you. What is that about? That's about a relationship with God. That's about developing more than just going through the motions with God. That's about developing a, 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 a connection with him that's about more than, I'm going to check the box of daily Bible reading. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to pray so that I can tell my accountability partner that I, I pray. This is about the, the connection with God, the relationship with God going beyond and transcending a master-slave relationship. Is God our master and our Lord? Yes, 100%. But is he also our father? Yes, 100%. Are we his children? Yes, we are. And so to draw near to God is to lean into the relationship with God that we want. And the promise that God provides for us in James chapter 4 here is that God in turn will draw near to us. And so if you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself tonight, you know, I just, I'm not content with my relationship with Christ. I want a deeper relationship with God. I want a more close relationship with God. Y'all, the promise that James is holding out for you tonight is that's possible. Is that God wants that with you. And if you will get serious about that and not just say, you know, this is something I want, but actually be disciplined enough to begin to cultivate that and pursue that, then what James is telling you is that in return, God will draw near to you, that your relationship with him will get better. What does that look like? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're in a dating relationship or you have a best friend in the room or best friend somewhere, what does that look like to you? What does it look like for you to, to work on those relationships? How do you pursue a relationship with a friend? How do you pursue a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend? What does that look like? You know what, that's, what that looks like. You know what that involves and what that entails. And yet I don't understand why when it comes to God, we're like, well, I don't know how to have a relationship with God. You say, well, I, God doesn't speak to me. Yes, he does. He's spoken to you in 66 books. 
well, but when I, when I pray, it just feels like uh, my prayers are, are bouncing off the ceiling. They're, they're not, though. The Bible says he hears our prayers. Well, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I don't know how to spend time with God. Well, when you spend time with somebody that you care about, that you love, that you want a relationship with, don't you spend time doing the things that they like to do? You spend time pursuing what their interests are, what makes them happy. Guys, for us as, as believers, to, to have a good relationship with God is to do those things. In your life, it's to pursue the, the activities and to do the things that are gonna please God. It's to say, okay, God, what are the things that you're delighted in? That, what are your interests, for lack of a better phrase, God, and, and how can I pursue those things? And it's doing everything so that he's gonna be pleased. It's, it's not because you're, you're afraid that otherwise he's gonna zap you off the face of the planet. No, it's because you love him. It's because you want a relationship with him. That's how you draw near to God. Maybe one of the reasons why your best friend's meal feels more tangible than the Lord is because you haven't really been pursuing the Lord. But if you do, he's going to draw near to you. He's going to respond to that. Again, there's two sides in this world. There's the devil, resist the devil, and then there's God. Draw near to God. Choose God's team. Choose God's team. If you choose God's team and as you're drawing near to him, what you're gonna begin to realize is you're gonna look at your life and realize, man, I wanna live a life that's more pleasing to him than the life that I'm currently living. You're gonna look at your life and you're gonna be like, wow, there's a lot about my life. There's a lot of sin in my life, in my heart that I don't wanna be a part of my life anymore. James has an answer for that. Look at verse eight. He goes on, he says, cleanse your hands. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Guys, the, the, the happy-go-lucky preachers can't preach the book of James. The guys that don't want to talk about the hard stuff can't preach through the book of James because you have statements like this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Guys, that's not gonna put butts in the seats. But it's a biblical response. And like I said, as we draw near to God, as we've chosen God's team, as we are on that side of the, 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 the rivalry, we're gonna begin to look at our lives and go, okay, there's a lot about my life that I wanna get rid of. And I wonder, I, I wanna ask you tonight, how often do you think about your sin as something that's gross and dirty and defiling? Probably not as often as we might need to because when we think about ourselves that way, it's offensive, isn't it? It offends us to think of our sin as something that's, that's dirty, that's gross. And we begin to, to think about our sin rather than as, as God sees our sin, we begin to think about our sins in the categories of comparison. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as somebody else that I know. And so my sin is not as bad, not as dirty, not as offensive as this person's sin. Or you think to yourself, you know what? Uh, there are sins just in general that are far more offensive, far dirtier than the sins that I struggle with. And so really my sins aren't that big of a deal. But do you know that the Bible says that even our good works done for the wrong reasons are offensive to God? Say that again, our, our good works done for the wrong reasons are offensive to God, repulsive, disgusting to God. Isaiah 64, six, 
Isaiah 64, 6, he says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This isn't what he meant, but I'll just use this to clean it up from what he meant, believe it or not. They're like a a soiled diaper is what he's saying. All of our righteous deeds So if our good works done not for the right reasons are like a soiled diaper in God's eyes, how awful are even the slightest and smallest of our sins? Proverbs 30 verse 12 says this, Proverbs 30 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but they are not washed of their filth. They're clean in their own eyes, but they are not washed of their filth. Again, this isn't an an easy thing to hear or think about. But the Christian who is humble and who doesn't think too highly of himself is gonna come to see his sin the way that God sees his sin. Why? Because we've chosen God's team, because we're submitting to God, because we are drawing near to him. And as we draw near to him, we're gonna come to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. And that includes the sin in our lives. Point number two tonight is this. Embrace God's view of your sin. Embrace God's view of your sin. I I hate, and I always have from the time that I was little, I hate having sticky hands. Anybody else with me on that? And like now that we've got kids at home that make their own peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and I go to grab the jelly jar and it just, you cannot grab the jelly jar or the maple syrup container and not walk away with sticky hands in the house. It is impossible. And I hate it. It's gross. Like I can't, I have to get my hands clean, right? Or maybe it's a stained shirt. Like sometimes I'll put on a shirt and I'll have a stain like in the bottom right corner where nobody would ever see it, but I'll notice it and I'll ask my wife about it and she'll be like, it's no big deal, nobody's gonna notice, but I can't, I, just, I can't, I can't do it, I can't, because it's there and it bothers me and I'm like, but it's there and it, no, I can't do it. So I change, right? Or there's something that's even worse than that. I know, worse than a stained shirt, believe it or not. Do you guys know what trypophobia is? You're about to. It is the most heebie-jeebie skin-crawling thing ever. And I don't know why. In fact, I watched YouTubes about it today to try to understand trypophobia and why it does what it does. It's actually not really a phobia. I've got a picture of it here. If, if this is, does that do anything to you? If it does, then you have trypophobia and welcome to the family. Trypophobia is literally in the Greek, the fear of holes. The fear of holes, more specifically, the fear of holes arranged in a random pattern. You're like, is that a thing? Yes, it is. The DSM-5, the mental illness category, it's not in that book yet, but it's coming in the DSM-6. I'm convinced of it. But it's actually not a phobia because they studied people's responses and reactions to it. And it's not that you're afraid of these weird holes. It's that you're disgusted by it. It's like you look at it and you're like, dude, that is stomach churning. Don't Google trypophobia because you will lose your lunch. I promise you. I promise you. Or maybe some of you are like, challenge accepted. I'm going to do it. It's like, it is, it's disgusting. And it makes your skin crawl. And you're like, that is the worst thing I have ever seen in my life. Y'all, that needs to be the way that we see our sin. And if you're not repulsed by holes or sticky hands or stains on your shirt, figure out what you are repulsed by. And as as repulsed as you are by that thing, y'all, that's how you need to see your sin. Such that it makes you want to be cleansed from your sin. Cleansed, 
purified. I mean, think of the language that they're using there. And it's not just here. All throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system, so much of it was about going from being unclean in the eyes of God to being clean in the eyes of God. And so you should want to be cleansed from your sin. Somebody sneezes on you on an airplane and you're like, okay, right? Like that revulsion, that needs to be you with your sin. God, cleanse me from this. Get this away from me. Get it uh, gone from me. I want nothing to do with it. God, purify my heart. He says, cleanse your hands. In other words, cleanse your, your, your person from the acts of sin. God, remove the actual physical acts of my sin from me. And he says, and purify my heart. Go after the things that, that produce the sin in my life, the root of the sin that's in my heart. God, purify me, purge me, remove those things from me. See, again, for James, one of the problems that he was addressing is worldliness, right? Well, one of our problems with worldliness and why we continue to, to flirt with the world is that we don't see our sin as repulsive and disgusting the same way that God does. We see it as, as no big deal. We see it as not a problem. We see it as, well, I, you know what, that's legalistic for you to think that I need to deal with this sin. But y'all, we should, we should see it as, as, as grotesque and filthy as God sees it. Again, even our righteous deeds are like a soiled diaper. How much more filthy are our sins in the eyes of God? We should see that and long and want to be cleansed. Cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, our passions, our dispositions that produce the sins that defile us. And then he goes further. He says that our, our sin should grieve us. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Over what? Over your sin. Be wretched over your sins. Sometimes, y'all, we rush to, to, to soothe our conscience too soon in the wake of sin. And we fall into that pattern, and the more we fall into that pattern, the more we are searing our conscience so that sin becomes easier and easier and easier to do, and we feel less and less and less guilty and bad about committing the sins that we commit until we can commit them without a second thought afterwards. James is saying, no, there is a appropriate amount of consideration and thought and time to be given to being wretched and mourning and weeping over your sinfulness. Which is only gonna come if we begin to see our sin the way that God sees our sin. We understand mourning, feeling wretched over sin, don't we? Let me give you an example. When I talk about the words rape or child pornography, I would imagine the response within you is one of, of reviling, of recoiling, of thinking that that's atrocious, that's horrible. And when you hear of people who have suffered that, who have been victims of rape or victims of child pornography, your heart breaks for them because of the sin that's been done against them. So it's not something that we're foreign with, this concept of mourning over sin. We just may be foreign over the concept of mourning over our own sin, our sins of lying, our sins of cheating, our sins of lust, our sins of anger, our quote-unquote respectable sins. 
Does your sin cause you to mourn and weep? Does your sin cause you to go, God, cleanse my hands, purify my heart? Submitting to God is embracing this view of your sin and doing something about it. Y'all, we need to break out of the mindset that this world is somehow about us. It's not. We need to break out of the mindset that this world is about us matriculating through college, getting a good job, having a good family, having a good house, having our kids healthy, having a, a retirement plan, living in Southern California. We need to get beyond that because it's not about that. There are 7.7 billion people estimated in the world right now on the planet today, and you are one of them. And to think that this world is about your happiness is to miss the boat entirely. What this world is about is your Christ-likeness, your godliness, and your holiness. And if God provides you those other blessings in your life, should you feel bad about that? No, you shouldn't feel bad about that. But y'all, we spend so much of our time living for those things rather than living for God and letting God bring those things if that's what he chooses. Christians in sin needs to be like oil and water. They need to repulse one another. And as we submit to God, we should see less and less sin in our lives over time because we've begun seeing our sin the way that he sees it. And it repulses us and it says, God, cleanse my heart, cleanse my hands, purify my heart. I'm gonna be wretched, I'm gonna mourn, I'm gonna weep over my sin, God, because of what it does in your eyes. Let your laughter be turned to gloom. The things that used to entertain me, God, let those not entertain me anymore. Let those devastate me because of their sinfulness. It's a perspective, guys, to do that that requires a humility. To think of ourselves as, as needing to be cleansed, needing to be purified. To see our sins as grave and, and repulsive and offensive to God. That requires a humility in us. And James understood that and anticipated that. Which is why he says in verse 10, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James understands that the problem is pride. It's pride. It's selfishness. The reason why we don't resist the devil is because we're prideful and we want what the devil offers. The reason we don't embrace God's view of our sin is because we're, we're prideful and we think that we're better off than we really are. Y'all, if you want to be somebody who's proud, the world has more than enough fuel for your pride in this life. More than enough. Consider some of the platforms where you can promote yourself in this world. Top of the list is what? Social media, right? Built on the platform of pride. How many likes can you get? How many retweets can you get? How many reposts can you get? Who's interacting with your story? Who's voting on your story? How many followers do you have? Just feeds into pride, right? Another area that can feed into pride is, is work. Our culture, our society, our world, the United States has built the, the work structure to, to fuel the ego. Climb the corporate ladder. Step on whoever you have to step on to advance and work. Be better than everybody else. Look out for yourself. Make sure you're getting the promotion over and above everybody else. Right? It's, it's survival of the fittest in the workplace. And that's going to fuel your pride. Money fuels pride. If you have enough of it, or you want more of it, 
Possessions fuel your pride. Do you have the latest, the greatest, the newest, the best? Friends can fuel your pride. Who are in your friend's circle? Some of you, some of you have friends that you have because you want them to think that you're a cool person. They feed your pride. That's what they're there for is to do that for you. Education can fuel your pride. I go to this school. I have this degree. I'm planning to do this when I graduate. I've got this GPA. This is what I'm planning to get my master's degree on in. I mean, that can fuel our pride, right? If, if we want to be prideful, guys, this world will give us everything that we need for that. I think quite possibly the most repulsive sin in the eyes of God is our pride, though, and our selfishness. Our flesh feeds off that pride and that selfishness. And it's the enemy of true spirituality. It's the enemy of true Christ-likeness. Pride kills our relationship with the Lord because at its root it says, God, I don't really need you. Or I know better than you. Or I'm good enough without you. And see, it's impossible for us to submit to God, which is what James is talking about in this whole section, if we have a prideful heart. That's why he says, humble yourself, therefore, and God will exalt you. It's not your job to exalt yourself. It's God's job to exalt you according to his time frame and his plan. James addresses this specific pride in his readers in verses 11 through 12. He says, do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What law? The law of liberty. The law of God that says, love God and love others. James says, look, if you're going to judge one another, if you're going to be critical of one another, if you're going to look at each other as a stepping stone to get where you want to get, he says, then, then you are transgressing what God has called you to do, which is love him and love others as yourself. He goes on, but if you judge the law, you are a, not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Remember, this is the problem in the book of James. It goes all the way back to James chapter two, right? In fact, James chapter one, they're not being doers of the word, but only hearers of the word. James chapter two, they're showing favoritism to people that are walking in. They're, they're showing uh, priorities to the people that are wealthy and not to the poor people. They're, they're doing that. James chapter three, they're tearing each other down with their words, with their language. And then later in James chapter three, James chapter four, there's the, the worldliness that creeps in there. James is saying, look, you've got a major problem and your major problem is, is pridefulness. He's saying, you need to humble yourself. And God then will exalt you. Again, if, if our mindset is looking out for us, if our mindset is a prideful mindset, we cannot at the same time submit to God. And so instead, finally tonight, third point, we need to choose humility and trust. Choose humility and trust. Y'all, here's the deal. Even the world understands this. I read an article today that next week, Instagram is removing the like counts. It's removing the like counts so that when you post next week, your selfie, whatever, you're not going to know how many likes you have because Instagram is taking that off. Why are they taking that off? Because Instagram, Facebook, the company that owns Instagram, they released a statement that said, we're doing this to make Instagram a less pressurized place. What do they mean by that? We're doing it to make it a place where people are less obsessed with getting enough likes, less depressed about not getting enough likes. 
So even the world looks at something like Instagram and goes, yeah, of course, it's all about pride. It's all about selfishness. And so they're just going to hide the likes. Guys, some of us need to remove the like counts in our lives. Because you live your life waiting for somebody to double tap and give you the heart. Give you the attaboy, the girl. Be impressed with you. Y'all, it's not your job to make the world impressed with you. It's your job to make the world impressed with your God. Submit yourself to God. Humble yourself before God and God will exalt you. God wants you to live in humility. What does that look like? How do I do that? Let's talk about some ways. Number one, look at other people as somebody you can serve. Look at other people as somebody you can serve. That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter two. Have this mindset amongst yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, what did not account equality with God, something to be held onto, but he emptied himself. Becoming a bond servant, taking on flesh, being found in the likeness of man. And he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like Jesus himself said, what do you say? The son of man came not to what? serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you need to begin to look at other people, not as somebody who can serve you, but as somebody that you can serve and ask yourself, how can I serve this person? It's a way to humble yourself. Number two, don't be a braggart. Don't be a braggart. Don't puff yourself up. Don't come at people talking about how great you are and how great your accomplishments are. Don't do the humble brag either. We're trying to make it look like yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I got another promotion at work this week. I don't know what's going on. I've, I just do what I'm supposed to do and work. I don't know why I keep getting all these promotions, right? You know, don't, don't do those things. Let someone else recognize you. Don't recognize yourself. Third, don't worry about your advancement. Wherever you are in life, whatever you are facing, and y'all, this can be anything in life. I'm not just talking about work here. This can be socially. Some of you are out here and you are sitting there going, man, I would do anything to be in a relationship. And it's really your pride that's discontent with being single and you're saying to yourself, you know what, I, I want to be in a relationship because I want the pride of being able to say, look, I've got somebody who cares about me, who loves me. Trust that God is going to worry about your advancement in life. He'll change your social status in life, your social standing in life. That's not something that you need to worry about. He'll bring that to you. Fourth, don't obsess over your agenda. Plan your life with open hands. Understand that God may change plans on you. And be willing and ready to trust him with that. Fifth, way to humble yourself is to be quick to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Be quick to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Yes, when you're confronted, but not even when you're confronted. When you become aware that you did something that was wrong, that you sinned, go to that person. Humble yourself by apologizing and asking for forgiveness. But first and foremost, Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned, God. Make sure that you're quick to humble yourself to, to confess and ask for forgiveness before God when you sin. Sixth, Rehearse the gospel daily. How does that keep us humble? Because the gospel is humbling. Because the gospel says that we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God when Christ died for us. That we were utterly unlovable when Christ died for us. 
and that it was simply a free gift of God that we have come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So rehearse the gospel daily and it will help keep you humble. And then finally, believe that the good that God has in store for you is better than any good that you could secure for yourself. When he says that God will exalt you, believe that when God chooses to exalt you, that that is gonna be better, far better, far greater than any earthly exaltation that you could ever experience. And don't sacrifice that on the altar of the immediate. Y'all, this is a hard message and I get that for where y'all are at right now because I understand that right now you're thinking about angling for jobs, angling for promotions, looking for relationships, just trying to prove yourself in society in general. But again, the secret, the key there is those three words. Submit to God. Submit to God. God. Because the flip side is you could pursue immediate gratification. <clears throat> you can pursue the, the pleasures, the self-promotion. You can pursue all the worldliness you want to pursue here and now. And you know what? Here, I'll, I'll be straight with you. You can enjoy it. That's what makes sin so hard to battle is there is a, a pleasure about it. But you're also going to have the valleys. You're also going to be left always wanting more. And here's the stark reality that I want to leave with you who may be thinking, yeah, that's what I want, that's as close to heaven as you will ever get, is the cheap, knockoff highs that this world will offer you. For how long? You have no idea. You have no idea. It was a year ago today that we buried West Couch, 34-year-old former Marine and former SWAT officer, in perfect working health, dropped dead at our pastor's retreat on October 30th, a year ago, and we buried him a year ago today. So you can chase this world and its pleasures, but you don't know how long you're going to have and the pleasure that you experience in that short life that you have now, even if you live to be 80 in light of eternity, that's a blip on the radar. That will be as close to heaven as you get. The flip side, if you're willing to live a life where you submit to God, I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that this life is going to be easy because it's not going to be easy. I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that you're going to get everything that you want. I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that you're going to have a marriage. I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that you're going to have kids. I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that you're going to have the job that you want or that you're going to be healthy your whole life. But I will stand up here and promise you this, that the suffering that you endure here on earth will be the, the, the closest to hell that you'll ever get. And that's worth it. So you can have the closest thing to heaven that you'll ever experience with the cheap knockoff imitations that you have in pleasures here, or you can experience through the pain and suffering that we experience as followers of Christ here in this world for 75, 80 years, and that will be all the hell that you ever experience in exchange for an eternity with God in heaven. Submit to God. Choose God's team. Embrace God's view of your sin and choose humility and trust. Let's pray. God, what a great encouragement this passage is. What an amazing promises that it contains, that if we submit to, to you, 
that if we resist the devil, the devil's gonna flee from us, God. What an amazing reality that is. That's truth, that's scripture, that's your word. That's not me, that's not PJ up here. That is James through the inspired Holy Spirit saying, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And if we draw near to you, God, that you will draw near to us. There's no but or, or exception clauses there. It's truth, Lord, what an amazing reality that is. Thank you for that reality, God. I pray that we would live that. Pray that we would live lives obedient to you, submitted to you, humble. God, I pray that we would choose your team daily, that we would daily remind ourselves of the offense that our sin is, that we would weep and mourn over our sin and say, God, cleanse us from this. Cleanse my hands, purify my heart. Lord, turn my laughter into weeping over my sin. God, and that we would daily humble ourselves and trust you. Trust your plan. Trust in your good. Trust that you will exalt us according to your timing and your desires. Lord, help us to be found faithful in this. Faithful as we submit to you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.